Well, you're listening to the Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. Let's just remind you, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all children, teachers, employees, etc., cleaners, whatever. And as well as that, we believe that it should be publicly owned and controlled because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. And for that reason, for all those reasons, we also believe that it's the only one that should be publicly funded. Yes, and this afternoon on the DOGS program, we will be focusing a lot on PISA results. The uh, Program for International Student Assessment report has come out. It's come out a year late this time. It usually comes out every three years, but because of the pandemic, it had been uh, delayed for a year. But there has been lots and lots of talk going on about it and about the results. And how Australia's doing in the rankings. But without any further ado, let's get on with it. This is press release 1004. PISA results justify need for funding overhaul of Australian education. PISA results are with us again, and there is a plethora of commentaries. First, the ABC at the abc.net.au news website. You can find the PISA International School Rankings in Maths and Science and Reading. Check it out out if you like. Uh, It sums it up perhaps with this comment. Students throughout the world have fallen behind on reading and maths during the pandemic, but Australian teens have managed to buck the trend. Rather than dipping, Australians, Australia's results in maths, science and reading have actually held steady since 2018, according to the latest international education rankings. It means Australian 15-year-olds now rank 9th in the world for reading and science and 10th in the world for maths. But the story is not all rosy, with the data revealing most half still failed to reach the national standards in those subjects, with those from wealthier backgrounds outperforming students from less privileged families. So, and then according to Passy Salberg, uh, the Finnish education professor currently employed at the University of Melbourne, writing in the Guardian newspaper on the 6th of December, there is good news and bad news for Australia in the latest PISA program. results which were released this week by the OECD. First, the good news, Australia's back in the top 10 education countries, but that good news is not because our education systems are performing better than before. Australia is still sliding downwards, but other countries are doing so faster. PISA measures 15-year-olds' ability to use their reading, mathematics and science knowledge and skills to meet real-life challenges. It's been administrated every three years since 2000 in all OECD member countries and in an increasing number of non-members. Overall, in OECD countries, students' performance has dropped dramatically since 2000. The pandemic made an already bad situation worse. The gap between before and after COVID mathematics scores is equivalent to almost one year of learning. 
The way to interpret the latest PISA data confirms what we already know. Australia offers world-class schooling to most young people, but not to all. The most privileged half of our students perform at a similar level to those in education superpowers like Japan and Korea. Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools has a more brutal interpretation. The OECD's 2022 PISA results reveal Australia has become one of the most unequal school systems in the OECD, and that inequality is increasing. The new results intensify the pressure on the federal and state territory governments to fully fund public schools because they enrol over 80% of disadvantaged students. To his credit, the Federal Minister for Education, Jason Clare, said this again highlights the importance of fixing the funding gap and this education gap in Australian schools. The AEU agrees with Trevor Cobalt but puts a grassroots perspective on the circumstances. The, pres- the President, Karenna Haythorpe, responded to the results as follows. This test was conducted after two years of disrupted learning and at a time when public school teachers demonstrated their extraordinary commitment to their students despite unsustainable workloads and rising teacher shortages, Ms Haythorpe said. But only 1.3% of public schools are resourced to the minimum level that governments agreed a decade ago they need to meet the needs of their students. Unacceptable achievement gaps between students from different backgrounds and locations are a clear reminder we don't have an equitable education system that can meet the needs of every child. Making our education system fairer starts with fairer funding. Government funding for public schools per student increased by 17% after inflation between 2012 and 2021. That is half the rate of private schools, which are now overfunded by almost $3 billion. This is despite public schools educating the vast majority of higher needs students, such as children in rural and remote areas, First Nations students and those with a disability. 82% of children Children from low SES backgrounds are in public schools. The pressure is now upon the federal government to deal with the gross inequalities in funding caused by the capitulation of both Liberal and Labor parties to the private religious sector. And perhaps the most interesting comments came from the readers of the Passy Salberg article, especially those that mirror the dog's position. Sisyphus says, So basically, if you have parents wealthy enough to send you to a private school, then you are one of the high achievers, looking forward to a university degree and one of the high demand professions. On the other hand, if you live in a low socioeconomic area, probably the majority, you are in for a life where every move is going to be hard. Some of these make it and a lot don't. The real irony is that this two-tier system is heavily backed by the neoliberal ALP. The ALP is the political arm of the affiliated unions and the biggest and therefore most influential of of these unions are Catholic and right factions.
The Vatican doesn't even believe in socialism. They believe only God should look after the welfare of people. The private school union is an affiliated union to the ALP. The state school union is not, and that says it all. Time to ditch the ALP and form a real democratic socialist party. Iruka says, I'm afraid the inequalities described don't represent failure, but success, the success of a social and political project. Education has become, these past couple of decades, an increasingly more effective means of reproducing intergenerational inequality. This has been done by means of the segregation of students, via countless strategies, and justified by countless bottomlessly dishonest narratives and the identities and labels they impose. Schools, politicians, middle-class parents, not wealthy parents, just solidly middle-class ones, have colluded in the invention of these strategies. Dedicating the resources necessary to reverse the growing inequality won't be easy, not because it will be expensive, but because it will be faced because it will face the dogged determination of middle-class parents to do whatever's necessary to defend what they've gained. You can expect every sort of fear-mongering to fill the the usual low-lying areas of public discourse, from incoherent narratives about the looming collapse of public education as a whole to ever-uglier stories about the behaviour of the wrong sorts of pupils, the Willie Horton strategies using eight-year-olds. The countries whose results demonstrate less inequality aren't necessarily more enlightened. Some just try harder to educate everyone because an educated population is a more valuable resource, a greater pool of human capital. The middle class project to limit the value of less than middle class children so as essentially to engineer a scarcity that increases the value of their own doesn't just create inequality, it degrades the economic and social prospects of their country. And that was press release 1004 and you can find it at the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. We'll have a quick break and we'll be back with more DOGS after this. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And welcome back to the DOGS program. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And now I'll pass you over to Andy, who has some new major recommendations that have come out of a recent report. Over to you, Andy. More public school funding, student screening and teacher support among major review recommendations. Public schools must be fully funded to combat inequality and all students should be regularly screened to see if they need additional support, a major review into school resourcing has found. Uh, The key points, the findings of an independent expert-led review into school funding has been revealed. The report found public schools are under-resourced, further entrenching disadvantage. Education ministers are set to negotiate new funding arrangements. 
The panel examining the National School Reform Agreement, NSRA, which determines how schools are funded, said the gap between privileged students and those at disadvantaged schools was growing and inequality was entrenched. The group said almost all public schools were not funded to the school resourcing standard, SRS, but on average non-government schools were funded at or above their full government funding level. The fact that inequality in funding persists, and is predicted to persist in nearly every jurisdiction, is an issue that requires urgent action, the reviewers said. The report also called for teachers to be given more targeted support and mentoring as part of a suite of recommendations to attract and retain a workforce under significant stress. Among the recommendations were incentives for highly effective teachers to work in schools with complex needs, a better integration of services such as speech therapy, and more training for teachers to deal with complex behaviour. The report also recommended wellbeing coordinators in schools, a focus on building inclusive culture to prevent bullying, and creating clearer pathways for students to tertiary education and employment. It comes ahead of state, territory and federal education ministers negotiating how schools will be funded under a new national agreement, with the current one set to expire next year. After meeting with his state counterparts on Monday, Federal Education Minister Jason Clare said the next NSRA would focus on making school funding fairer. We've got to fix this funding gap and fix this education gap, he said in a statement. Key recommendations. Institute a Year 1 phonics check, National Consistency Numeracy check, implemented by 2028. Find incentives for highly effective teachers and principals to work in schools of socio-economic disadvantage. Collect well-being data. Access to counselling services. Implement zero-tolerance approach to racism. Address teacher workload challenges, better mentoring, improved diversity in workforce, and improve funding transparency and accountability mechanisms. Funding disparities have been reflected in academic results, with the latest OECD data showing Australian schooling is facing a class divide. The reviewers said concentrated economic disadvantage can also dampen student expectations for the future, weaken their confidence, reduce community engagement of school leavers, and undermine social cohesion. Educators have welcomed the review, but said it was not strong enough on teacher retention. We know that teachers are not saying they want things like off-the-shelf lesson plans. They want more staffing support and cuts to red tape and more support for students with complex needs, said Karina Haythorpe, Federal President of the Australian Education Union. Our schools and students can't wait any longer. We expect to see governments take action now. The Catholic education sector was extensively engaged in the review process and welcomed the report. The report's focus on equity and excellence, well-being and teacher workforce considerations apply across all sectors, said National Catholic Education Executive Director Jacinta Collins. The Education Minister's reinforcement of the need to work towards the Alice Springs Mpantwi Education Declaration reflects the importance of choice for families and a holistic approach to schooling in Australia, including the spiritual development of students that attend both faith-based and government schools. The report was also well received by non-religious private school groups. Now this report has been released, we hope to see the public discourse move on from misrepresentations of independent schools and their students and parents to a genuine dialogue about how we can all deliver the best education outcomes for every Australian school student, regardless of background or sector, said Independent Schools Australia CEO Graham Catt. Half of the schools in the independent sector charge annual average fees of less than $5,300. There are many that charge no fees at all and serve highly disadvantaged groups, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, students with disability and those at risk of disengaging from education altogether.
According to the latest Productivity Commission data released this year, public schools enrol more than twice as many students from low socio-educational advantage backgrounds, 31.3%, as private schools, 12.8%. Ministers on Monday also received the final report of the university's accord, the biggest review of the higher education system in years. That report is likely to be made public in early 2024. The NSRA review followed an investigation earlier in the year into how teachers are taught their jobs, which made recommendations on how educators learn the skills of their profession. It called for more consistency in course content, standards and mentoring. But I think at the bottom of it all, we really should just fund public schools properly. That is the bottom line. And take the money from independent and private schools if that's where it has to come from. Back to you. Thanks very much for that, Andy. And now we'll have another break. We'll be back with more dogs after this. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. And welcome back to the DOGS program, the Defence of Government Schools program. And now I'm going to pass you over to Sorrel, who has Passy Salberg's article uh, and his response to the PISA report that has just come out. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks. So today I have an article by Passy Salberg entitled The Good News is Bad News When It Comes to Australians' Pupils' PISA Scores, But There's No Need to Panic. Though we stand well above the OECD average, we must double our efforts towards providing more equitable education in the future. There is good news and bad news for Australia in the latest PISA, Program for International Student Assessment, results, released this week by the OECD. First of all, the good. Australia is back in the OECD's top 10 education countries. Now the bad. That good news is not because our education systems are performing better than before. Australia is still sliding downwards but many other countries are doing so much faster. Many of them much, much faster. PISA measures 15-year-olds' ability to use their reading, mathematics and science knowledge and skills to meet real-life challenges. It has been administrated every three years since 2000 in all OECD member countries and in an increasing number of non-member countries. The breaking news from the latest PISA study is that, overall, In OECD countries, students' performance has dropped dramatically since 2000. The pandemic made an already bad situation worse. The gap between before and after COVID mathematics scores is equivalent to almost one year of learning. One way to interpret the latest PISA data confirms what we already know. Australia offers world-class schooling to most young people, but not to all. The most privileged half of our students perform at similar levels to those in educational superpowers, Japan and Korea. This is an important yet 
too often ignored reality. When education leaders consider how to address the bad news or the good news of today, we know what good schools look like. Even more importantly, we have expertise to understand what it takes to help most students succeed. But we continue to struggle with how to redesign large, rigid systems for schools to improve themselves from within, based on professional wisdom, experience and other evidence rather than externally implemented reforms. The PISA data confirms another well-known aspect of Australia's education system. There are persistent inequities that jeopardise efforts to improve the quality of student outcomes. Unlike our OECD peers, we have a high concentration of disadvantaged students attending schools where the vast majority of students are disadvantaged. What makes this segregated situation worse is that almost all these schools are inadequately funded public schools, lacking the resources to provide good education and care to their students with special needs. Although Australia now stands significantly above the OECD average in maths, reading and science rankings, we need to double our efforts towards providing more equitable education in the future. A good reminder of this is that the performance gap between students in the top and the bottom socioeconomic quartiles is widening. More than 22 years of results haven't improved the state of the world's school education. For example, compared with the 2018 data, Australian advantaged students gained about seven PISA points in mathematics and disadvantaged students declined by 12.5 points. Furthermore, 43% of the most socioeconomically disadvantaged students were low performers in mathematics. Our challenge is to fix these systemic inequities that prevent education systems from getting better for everyone. Since 2000, the world our children live in has dramatically changed and yet schooling relies on an industrial model of mass production. The way forward is not primarily about new curriculum, different teaching methods or more discipline in the classrooms. We need much bolder steps. We should reimagine how school could be more inspiring and engaging for students to learn and for teachers to teach. What PISA makes clear is that the strong drivers of dropping educational performance are declining student engagement, teacher agency and overall well-being. Education leaders need to refocus their improvement efforts on creating better frameworks for schools so they can craft teaching and learning to benefit everyone. We also need to take a closer look at what other countries do. Professor Jeff Masters of the Australian Council for Educational Research says many successful education systems approach teaching and learning by giving greater priority to the development of deeper conceptual understanding and students' abilities to apply what they learn across different contexts. There is no need to panic. Australian government education systems have begun to change the way they address student engagement, teacher agency and more flexible learning opportunities for all children. Good examples include public education strategies in South Australia and New South Wales. Some may think PISA hasn't delivered what it promised. More than 22 years of results haven't improved the state of the world's school education. Statistical correlation over time suggests the more data we collect and reports we publish about education systems, the worse they perform. 
more and better data, as argued when PISA was inaugurated, clearly hasn't turned into better education for all. Based on PISA, the OECD keeps reminding us of what has been perhaps the most significant lesson of all. Successful education systems combine excellence and quality in their policies and practices. The National School Reform Agreements aim to close the existing funding flaws, enabling public schools to tackle better the wide range of disadvantage they are dealing with. Money often doesn't matter in education, but it does if we wish to enhance the equity of education outcomes and have schools give a fair go to every child. And we just have some comments here as well. This commenter writes, I have seen work samples the high school teacher in the family brings home from a low socioeconomic school. The lack of basic literacy is shocking. Year 11 students who can barely form letters. So many arrive in year 7 with such low literacy skills they are classified illiterate. She has worked with year 10 students who could not identify all of the letters in the alphabet. That's some very interesting observations from um, low socioeconomic schools. Another commenter writes, uh, how refreshing that PISA measures the ability to use their reading, mathematics and science knowledge and skills to meet real life challenges, i.e. it looks at the application of knowledge, not just the knowledge alone. Working with many employers, we find that, while basic literacy is important, the skills in critical thinking, problem-solving, and communication are often more highly valued and needed in workplaces. Yes, that's very true, as that comment wrote. And the last comment I have for you is about an Australian who lives in Estonia. As an Australian who lives in Estonia, they write, the country whose kids performed best at the PISA results in Europe I'd add that there is something to be said for the fact that private and religion-based schools are very much a minority here, and that 99% of students follow exactly the same curriculum for most of the years spent in school education. As such, the educational landscape is much more even, although there is still a significant gap between Estonian language and Russian language schools precisely because of the language difference. And literacy is higher across the board. Keep class out of classrooms and the results speak for themselves. That's an excellent note to finish on. Back over to you. Thanks so much for that, Sorrel. Yes, there's been many, many responses to the PISA report. And, uh, of course, Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools has chimed in. And now I've got Jeff with an article from Trevor Cobalt that uh, – suggests that the report should intensify pressure on the government to fully fund public schools. Over to you, Jeff. Okay, we're going to do another article on the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, it's called, report which comes out every three years, done by the OECD. And this one, it's by Trevor Cobold from the Save Our Schools site, another sister organisation of the DOGS. And it's called PISA Results Intensify Pressure on Governments to Fully Fund Public Schools. So the OECD's 2022 PISA results reveal Australia has one of the most unequal school systems in the OECD and that inequality is increasing. There are large achievement gaps in reading, mathematics and science of five or more years of learning at age 15 and the gaps have widened since 2006. 
As well, a large and growing proportion of disadvantaged students do not achieve international standards. The new results intensify the pressure on the federal and state and territory governments to fully fund public schools because they enrol over 80% of disadvantaged students. To his credit, the Federal Minister of Education, Jason Clare, said, This again highlights the importance of fixing the funding gap and the education gap in Australian schools. The question is whether he will deliver it in the next National Schools Reform Agreement. The key test will be the outcome of the Education Minister's meeting, as Michelle Grattan stated in, in the conversation. Education Minister Jason Clare performs convincingly, but his tests are still to come, especially as Australia grapples with how to improve school outcomes. This week's PISA results reinforced how imperative this is. The achievement gaps between high socioeconomic status, SES, and disadvantaged students have widened in reading, mathematics and science since 2006. The OECD states that 20 points on the PISA scale represent about one year of learning. The gaps between high and low SES students increased from just over four years of learning to nearly five years in reading and over five years in mathematics and science. The gaps between high SES and Indigenous students in reading remains at just over six years of learning and nearly seven years of learning in science. The mathematics gap increased significantly from about six years to six and a half years. The gaps between high SES and remote area students increased by about one year of learning, with a reading gap of over five years and nearly six years in mathematics and science. The OECD data show that Australia now has the equal 12th largest mathematics achievement gap between high and low SES students out of 37 OECD countries for which the data is available, the 13th largest gap in science and the 14th largest in reading. The results also strongly suggest that the learning of disadvantaged students suffered more from the COVID pandemic than advantaged students. Reading, mathematics and science scores fell for all disadvantaged students between 2018 and 2022, but largely increased for advantaged students. Reading scores for low SES, Indigenous and remote area students fell by about six months of learning, while there was an insignificant change for high SES students. Mathematics scores for disadvantaged students fell by over six months of learning, but increased for high SES students. Science scores for high SES students increased by nearly a year of learning but declined for disadvantaged students, including a decline of about six months of learning by remote area students. Disadvantaged students had more problems in learning during the COVID shutdown. These students had less access to online learning technology and less family resources at home. COVID and the digital divide between rich and poor has set back the learning of low SES, Indigenous and remote area students and widened the gaps between them and their SES peers. Large proportions of disadvantaged students did not achieve the basic PISA proficiency level in 2022. One third or more of low SES and remote area students did not achieve basic proficiency in reading and science, while 43% of low SES and 48% of remote area students did not achieve the basic mathematics proficiency. Over half of all Indigenous students did not achieve basic mathematics proficiency. 45% did not achieve reading proficiency and 46% did not achieve science proficiency. The percentage of disadvantaged students not achieving basic proficiency standards was generally three to four times that of high SES students. Only about 10% of high SES students did not achieve these standards. Very few disadvantaged students achieved the highest proficiency levels compared to high SES students. Only 2 to 4% of low SES, Indigenous and remote area students achieved the highest PISA proficiency levels compared to about 25% of high SES students. The percentage of high SES students achieving at the highest proficiency levels was about eight times that of disadvantaged students. 
The new PISA results demonstrate that Australia has a highly inequitable school system. The school system is failing disadvantaged students, the vast majority of whom are in public schools. Over 90% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. Not only does failure at school restrict the future of individual lives, but also restricts our economic prosperity and contributes to an unequal and divided society. The failure to fully fund public schools is a major factor contributing to inequity in education outcomes. Public schools are massively underfunded. The underfunding is evident in a large shortfall in government funding as a percentage of the schooling resource standard. In 2023, public schools in all states except the ACT are funded at 90% or less of their SRS. On average, public schools are funded at only 87.5% of their SRS compared to 105.5% for private schools. The funding shortfall in public schools is estimated at $6.8 billion. By contrast, the private schools are overfunded in all jurisdictions except the Northern Territory. The overfunding amounts to $1.1 billion. The onus is on education ministers to map a path forward to improve school results for disadvantaged students and reduce the massive achievement gaps between rich and poor. As Professor Pazzi Salberg of the University of Melbourne and a member of the expert panel that reported on the National Schools Reform Agreement has recommended we should be benchmarking students' performance to the most affluent kids to make sure policies try to narrow the achievement gap. Closing the achievement gaps between rich and poor requires bridging the funding gap between private and public schools. Education ministers must commit the funding required to meet the special challenges of public schools. Public schools must be fully funded by 2028 and all disadvantaged schools fully funded in the first year of the next National Schools Reform Agreement. The Education Minister's media will be a test of their commitment to improving results for disadvantaged students and to the future of public education. All public school teachers and parents will be watching. Let's hope the Ministers are up to the test. Somehow, I doubt it. They tend to flub that one every year. And that's why we need to stop lavishing money on these affluent schools and start putting money where it's needed, in the state school sectors. And with that, back to you. Well, thanks very much for that, Jeff. We'll have a quick break and we'll be back with more dogs after this. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And welcome back to the Dogs Program. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Dogs Program, the Defence of Government Schools Program. And we've been talking about PISA results uh, that have just come out, but uh, it's also that time of year where we have ATAR results and VCE results. So I'd just like to share with you an article by Caitlin Cassidy on ATAR results. When can students expect their university admission rank and what does it mean? And this is from The Guardian. So getting your ATAR can be a significant milestone, but it's only one of many possible pathways to Australia's higher education system. Students around Australia have received their ATAR after completing this year's high school exams. It's an event that marks the end of 13 years of schooling and the start of a new chapter. But how important 
are end-of-year results and how much do they really define the future. Here are the key things to know about the week ahead. What is an ATAR? An ATAR ATAR, Australian Tertiary Admission Rank, is an important measure taken into account by universities to determine entry to courses, but not the only one. It calculates a number between 0 and 99.95 that ranks students in relation to the to their year group. So an ATAR above 80% means a student is in the top 20% of their cohort. Universities use ATARs as a nationally recognised measure for students' comparison and set the lowest rank that will receive an offer for each course. But most institutions also offer pathway options via adjustment factors, which increase the student's selection rank for particular courses. Adjustment factors are available for a range of measures, including school and regional background, applications for educational access schemes, EAS, performance in relevant courses and for elite athletes and performers. They are applied by institutions automatically if students are eligible. For example, a student may have received an ATAR of 83 plus an adjustment of four points. Their selection rank would be 87, meaning they would receive a place for a course with a lower selection rank of 86, even though their ATAR alone wasn't high enough. So when do the results come out? Gone are the days when students would have to wait by the mailbox to find out how their exams had gone. Results are staggered across the nation, but all students now access their final scores online through email, a website portal or an app. In Victoria, exam results became available at 7am on Monday, followed by Tasmania on Wednesday, New South Wales and the ACT on Thursday and Queensland on Friday. Students in Western Australia, South Australia and the Northern Territory have to wait until Monday the 18th of December for their results. The results will provide students with their study scores for each subject, which are scaled up or down based on the performance of each of students in each course. These scores are then generated into an aggregate, which is the overall ATAR ranking. The way in which this occurs differs by state and territory. So what happens next? First round university offers begin in December, with further rounds to continue until March. Students can still change their preferences after receiving their ATAR for second round offers. If they don't receive the offers they wanted in the subsequent rounds, windows to change preferences continue until the admission process is finalised. Dates are different in each state and territory, so it's best to check websites of admission centres for deadlines. And how has the admissions process changed? Since reforms were introduced by the coalition that made some degrees, including arts and humanities, more expensive, selection ranks have shifted. Universities have been incentivised to enrol more students in arts degrees to subsidise the costs of STEM courses, which are generally more expensive to run. Ten universities, including the University of New South Wales, the University of Western Australia and the University of Queensland, have lowered their 
their minimum entry ATAR requirements for arts degrees since the changes were introduced in 2021. So many students out there finding out what their ATARs will be and you know it's I've got to tell you if you're a student and you're listening and you're waiting to find out your ATAR and whether you've gotten your first round pick I've got to tell you it is not the end of the world please realize that it's not the end of the world there are other pathways into university even if it means perhaps starting as a mature age student which uh opens up a lot more doors for you. Um, I went back as a mature age student uh, when I was 26 and uh, became member of the Golden Key International Honours Society because as an adult going back, I knew exactly what I wanted to study. So the books in my course were already things that I was reading in bed at night anyway. So the enthusiasm you have for a subject as an adult, I think, has a little bit more maturity and focus about it than this uh, forced enthusiasm you have as soon as you finish year 12. The the pressure that's put on you, oh, you've got to pick what you want to do. You've got to know exactly what you want to do as soon as you finish year 12. Please, kids, feel free to take a breath and not worry too much. ATAR is what it is. These rankings will always be there they'll always every every child learns differently every educational journey is different and if you've fostered a lifelong love of learning it doesn't matter when you begin that journey at university so please as as excited as we are about ATAR scores and about you getting your first round picks don't stress it's not the end of the world if you don't get them Okay, we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll be back and go overseas with Jeff. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR Community Radio. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools program on 3CR Community Radio. And now we're going overseas with Jeff. 
What have you got for us this week, Jeff? Thanks for that. And we're going to start today with an article from uh, the wonderful Diana Ravitch blog from the United States. It's, a, it's actually an article by a guy called Peter Green, who's a regular contributor on that blog site. Uh, this dates from the 10th of December 23, uh, with an introduction by Diana Ravitch, who says... A quarter century after the launch of vouchers in Milwaukee, we now know a lot that we didn't know then. The title of the article is Vouchers Are Not Saving Poor Kids From Failing Schools. Surprise, surprise. The sales pitch was always humanitarian, says Diane. Vouchers, it said its right-wing advocates, would save poor kids from failing schools, except they didn't. We now know, writes Peter Green, that vouchers do not save poor kids from failing schools. They are a subsidy for students who are already in private and religious schools. Maybe that was their purpose all along. One other thing we've learned about vouchers. The first voucher program is for low-income kids, but it's the camel's nose under the tent. The income restrictions will be raised again and again, and more groups of eligible students will be eligible for vouchers. And one day there will be vouchers for everyone without regard to income or need. He writes, Voucher programs, this is Peter Green, Voucher program after voucher program is launched with the same promise. This program will rescue disadvantaged students from public schools that can't get the job done. But now that they've been around for a few years, we can see pretty clearly what they actually do. They expand. They subsidise private school costs for families that were already in private schools. Arizona's program is growing into a state budget buster. New Hampshire's state subsidy for private school tuition is mushrooming in just three years, and roughly 90% of the students using vouchers are still students who were already in private school. Iowa's program cost looks to be tremendous, with 19,000 students approved for vouchers. Arkansas is joining the crowd and provides a fine example of how these programs grow and who they actually benefit. Arkansas's voucher program was set up to start with disabled and low-income students. One immediate effect has been a boom in the fake-your-way-to-disability industry in Arkansas, where the options to prove your eligibility include a note from your doctor. And the Arkansas Times has learned that many students qualifying for vouchers didn't even clear that low bar. It's a bit of a catch-22, as students often have difficulty getting admitted to a private school if they have an IEP. 504 plan or disability. Still, almost half of Arkansas's voucher students were approved based on some sort of claim of disability. That may contribute to Arkansas's numbers. Of its voucher users, 95% did not attend a public school in the last year. And the program is only slated to expand as the bars for qualifying are lowered even further. Proponents of vouchers, like Governor Reynolds of Iowa, point at the expansion and huge cost runs as signs that families were hungry for educational freedom. Well, no. What it shows is that families like free money from the state to help pay for the expenses that they have already freely chosen for their children. So they're gaming the system over there in the States, and they're finding that, what do you know, vouchers are mushrooming. It's a bit like state aid to private schools in Australia. It's been mushrooming and mushrooming ever since the camel's nose entered the tent. This article is by an author by the name of Shorgi Tell, S-H-A-W-G-I, Tell, and it's in Dissident Voice, a radical newsletter in the struggle for peace and social justice from the States. Uh, I, I found a reprint of it in the Network for Public Education. And the article is called... 2,315 charter schools failed and closed in 11 years. This is in the United States. 
Although they've been around for more than 30 years, says Shogitel, and although they are frequently touted as being superior to public schools, the US Department of Education reports that between 2010-11 and 21-22, an 11-year period, 2,315 charter schools failed and closed in the US. That is a huge number of school closures in a short time frame. By any measure, it's hard to call such a phenomenon successful. And this figure probably does not capture the real number of charter schools that have failed and closed over the years, leaving thousands of parents, students, teachers, education support staff and principals violated and out in the cold. In 2024, hundreds more charter schools will fail and close, leaving many more people feeling angry and disillusioned. The same will happen in 2025 as well, further tarnishing the reputation of charter schools. Charter school promoters casually assert that such failure and closure are great and fantastic. Free market failure is supposedly an unassailable timeless virtue, even if it effectively disrupts, violates and harms thousands of people every year for completely avoidable reasons. What's more, there is apparently no alternative to this outdated setup. Disorder, volatility and leaving people high and dry are considered inevitable and the best of all worlds. In this obsolete outlook, instability and chaos are misequated with innovation and improvement. Failure becomes success. Reality is turned upside down in this view, which renders everything in a detached and abstract way as if real people and real injury are not involved when charter schools close every week, often abruptly and mid-year, forcing many to scramble to find a new school. Such a perspective has no conception of an education system that is stable, dependable, continuous and consciously directed by a public authority worthy of their name. In 2023, proponents of free market education still see everything from the lens of a dog-eat-dog world. They maintain that everyone has to fend for themselves like an animal, even though it's possible to easily meet the needs of all humans many times over without disruption and chaos. Social Darwinism is prioritised over everything else in this scheme. A society fit for all is avoided at all costs, while a society based on outdated hierarchies, inequalities and privileges is perpetuated. Today, approximately 3.7 million youth are enrolled in about 7,800 charter schools across the country, while 45 million students attend the nation's 100,000 public schools, which have been around for more than 150 years. So that's um, a clear indictment. Uh, as we know, these for-profit enterprises set up private schools, get charters out of Republican-dominated state legislatures, and then they um, pr proceed to set up their schools, they charge people to go there, and a couple of years later they fold them, and all the money disappears. That seems to be the pattern in the United States. There's a lot of fly-by-night charter school operations and all that money could have been going to public schools. Well, thank you very much for that. Now, instead of our regular good news story to finish off the program, where it is that time of year where we're having VCE results. So that'll be our good news story of the week for our great state schools, our VCE results. <laughs> Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. <laughs> So 
So it's Great State Schools VCE result time. We have some results for North Geelong Secondary College. North Geelong Secondary College Principal Nicholas Adamu says he's over the moon with the school's results, but he's most impressed with the performance of some recent arrivals to Australia. School ducks, Huang Song Chi, arrived as an asylum seeker in 2019 and today received an ATAR of 99.7, as well as a scholarship to the University of Melbourne to study physics. He's been one of the school's top students since year nine and over the past few years received study scores of 48 in further maths, 47 in maths methods, 47 in systems engineering and a 49 in physics. He did this while studying English as an additional language for which he received a score of 42. Classmate Omid Bahaduri arrived as a refugee from Afghanistan four years ago and received an ATAR of 86. 30% of North Geelong students received an ATAR above 80, while 40% received an ATAR above 70. So congratulations to the students of North Geelong Grammar. Well done. Uh, And some results for Melbourne High School. Three students at the Selective Boys Entry School, Melbourne High, achieved perfect scores this year. Khrushchev Malotra was overwhelmed to discover his ATAR of 99.95. It was crazy to say the least. I'm feeling quite emotional this morning, he said. Khrushchev hopes to go on to study medicine at university. I was motivated by empathy and to help others, but I'm also really excited by the challenge of medicine. I love the science behind it. 53 students received an ATAR of 99 or above, which is 20 more than last year. So congratulations to the boys at Melbourne High School. And here's a little article about thousands of students gaining a different kind of VCE certificate. Not every year 12 student in the state is sweating on their ATAR today. 6,387 students graduate instead with the VCE vocational major. The two-year applied learning program offers a pathway into apprenticeships, traineeships and employment opportunities after year 12. Their subjects don't count towards an ATAR. Instead, the course is more focused on on-the-job training. Instead, the course is more focused towards on-the-job learning. Williamstown High School students Katie and Saskia both completed the vocational major this year. Saskia did VCE in year 11 but decided the traditional path wasn't the right way to pursue her passion for music. I did VCE in year 11 and this year I continued VCE music but I also did VET music performance she said. I just did the vocational major because the VCE didn't seem like the right fit for me. I decided to go with something that was a bit more manageable for me and also I was able to do other things than just school all the time. Katie's been a hairdresser for two years and is hoping to get her qualification this year. She's spent 2023 juggling class with time on the job, working and trying to do TAFE and study at the same time. That was probably the hardest part, she said. Premier Jacinta Allen congratulated the first cohort of vocation education students to finish their two-year qualifications on Monday, saying there are many paths to succeed after school. There are many opportunities available, she said. And for once, I would have to agree, there are many, many paths 
after high school. So please, students, congratulations to everyone who's done well. Uh, don't fret it if you haven't done well. Don't worry. There are many different ways to forge on ahead into an exciting life. So just enjoy the fact that you finished your 13 years of schooling. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, uh, I'm Dale. Thank you to Sorrel and Andy and Jeff for helping us out. Uh, Jean will not be with us for the next week or so, but uh, our best wishes go out to her at the moment. Um, but you can find out more about the dogs at our website at www adogs.info but until next week it's bye for now I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me says I but Joe you're ten years dead I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I Killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.